0: This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello Rebels and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast episode 73. Today I'm going to be talking to Emma Byrne and it is a super fun, super cheeky, bit light-hearted episode where we're going to be talking all about my favourite hobby, swearing. And why swearing is good for you. Now this is actually a fascinating interview because we get into some of the psychology behind swearing, some of the neuroscience. It's not too heavy. Don't start turning off. Don't worry. We're not going to throw um, shitloads of science at you. It is genuinely fascinating and fun. And uh, we also try to relate it uh, to characters and stories and uh, what, you know how you can incorporate uh, swearing if you are you know potty mouth inclined. First to last week's question, which was what marketing tactic would you like to be better at? So Linda said social media, I don't necessarily hate it, but feel I'm so awkward and shouting into the void, basically. Meg Jolly said, I want to be better at Facebook and AMS ads. They're just gobbledygook. I really struggle outside of a launch cycle to keep them profitable. Tom said, I'd love to be better at ads. Of course, I'd love to have the time to learn them too. This week's question is a cheeky question. Uh, So I want to know what, what is your favourite swear word? I hope we get lots of very creative uh, suggestions and, uh, you know, naughty words. It'll be a very... Oh, I should add, this is a very sweary episode. There, I mean, there are basically no swear words that are not said in this episode. So if you are feeling slightly sensitive towards the uh, older, porty-mouth, blue language, then um, perhaps skip this episode or at least come back to it when you are feeling uh, more sweary. Uh, So yes, this week's question is, what is your favourite swear word? Now, the book recommendation for the week this week is The Heroine's Journey by Gail Carragher. Now, I... I can't remember if I have already recommended this or not. I, I did go back and check the last two or three weeks to make sure I hadn't, and uh, it wasn't in there, but that's not to say I haven't recommended it before. Now, I have read this book this week. I have, I think, two chapters left, some, something like that. Anyway, I have half read, half listened to uh, the audiobook and I have had a Gail uh, in an interview. I've interviewed Gail. I've had Gail in an interview. I haven't had Gail, I can assure you. But um, I, I have interviewed Gail and she is going to be on the show in March. And oh my goodness me, the epiphanies that Gail gave me were unbelievable. She was fascinating so knowledgeable and she's helped me fix a uh, tray and now I know I have got to the end of Trey, but um, obviously my critique partner's read it and I do need to make some changes. And having spoken to Gail, I need to make a few more changes. So it's probably going to be a good solid couple of weeks worth of work. However, I finally feel like I know what the problem was the whole time after this conversation. And so I've backed that up with going, because I'd already read some of The heroine's Journey, but I've now gone back to finish it. And um, I just can't tell you how useful it was to speak to her and to, um, yeah, like read through this book. So I am recommending The Heroine's Journey by Gail Carriger this week. So in personal news then, just a couple of reminders. I've got the live Q&A with Mark LeFave coming up on wide marketing. And I'm so excited for this. One, because I absolutely adore Mark. And two, because I am really going to be pushing. Once I get Trey and Sirens out later this year, I am really going to be pushing with the wide marketing. Um, I sort of eased off on a lot of uh, marketing my fiction just because I only had two books uh, done, even though I have like almost three ready. Anyway, so... Yes, I will be very excited to have that. And that epi- that uh, live episode, live episode? It's not an episode. That live show, whatever, is going to be uh, on March the 17th at 8pm GMT, 1pm PST, 4pm EST and 7am Sydney time. Uh, One last quick reminder about the uh, Pro Writing Aid Fantasy Week. Uh, If you are interested in writing fantasy, then they have got some amazing sessions with best-selling fantasy writers over the course of a week in February. I don't actually remember the specific date. I think it's like I feel like it's the last week of February. Anyway, I'm going to include the link in um, the show notes and I am going to be attending it as well. So I better find out when that date is. So, in personal news, then, I have been busy recording the audiobook of 13 Steps to Evil. I have been working on um, side characters. Now, Side characters was only supposed to be 40,000 words. It was supposed to be a book the size of villains and heroes, not a book the size of prose. However... Sasha doesn't get what she wants does she this week because I surpassed 40k and uh, then I surpassed 50k and I'm well on my way to 60k and uh, the finishing line is not quite within the reach that I wanted it to be so I have a feeling this is going to be a bit of a beast of a book Uh, I hope that also means it's going to be super useful to loads of you um But yes, Monday coming, the 15th of February, was supposed to be my deadline. That fuck is going to go straight past and, uh, well, I'm not going to finish it. So yeah, I'm going to try really hard to get this book wrapped up as soon as possible because I do want to have finished editing Trey this month as well. And uh, we're halfway through the month. So I don't think that's going to happen. But um, yeah, time seems to be evaporating at the moment and uh, pfft, I just, I just can't seem to get a grip of it. I I tried this week, uh, time blocking. So I know lots of people talk about time blocking and I've never quite got it to work for me. So what I did this week was I spent Sunday evening doing like, like getting my inbox down, uh, doing all of the admin that I had at that point, replying to emails. um, And then um, I shut my inbox and I shut everything down that wasn't writing. So I spent all day Monday writing, managed my second highest word count day ever. So obviously it paid off. And then I had all my meetings on Tuesday. And then Wednesday was my admin day. Although I then felt like I'd done two back to back days of admin because meetings to me are kind of our admin. Anyway, um, and actually that's weird, isn't it? Because to me, anything that isn't literally writing, so even if I'm like creating stuff, but it's not words, I still feel like that's admin, which I shouldn't do because that's bollocks. Anyway, I'm procrastinating. No, I am tangenting, tangent, whatever. Oh my God, clearly I need coffee this morning. Anyway, then Thursday I had the whole day to write and unfortunately I was so tired, I barely wrote a thousand words on Thursday. So I don't really know where yesterday went. And then obviously we are here today. So I'm going to try time blocking again next week. And I'm going to try the Sunday thing to make sure I don't have any admin hanging over me on um, Monday. But I don't know, I just don't feel like I am getting done what I should be and I thought I'd try this time blocking thing to see if that would work and I just I still don't seem to be getting the amount of words done that I need to be getting but anyway that is my update I am making progress um I really do think I'll have side characters finished by the end of this month um hopefully anyway <laughs> the fucking thing stops expanding um and yeah so you know trying to be positive trying to um yeah just 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 survive in this lockdown nonsense. Oh my goodness me. I have to tell you about one other thing as well. So I, um, my favorite coffee for my sins is Starbucks coffee made with oat milk because I'm intolerant to milk. It makes me very poorly. Um, and, I have been craving Starbucks. Now, because I'm intermittent fasting, it's very hard for me to drink coffee with milk. I basically can't drink it with milk because I don't open my window until like two o'clock or three o'clock for food. So I have been drinking espressos and I was craving a milky coffee so much yesterday. And I did not know that Starbucks delivery was a thing. So I sort of posted on my Instagram very lovely lady, pointed out to me that you can, there is such a thing as Uber Eats, which I'd never heard of before. Um, And, and I found it in the UK, we, I found that you can order coffee via Just Eat. Now, (laughs) I If you didn't get to see my Instagram story, I may have to like take a photo or something and drop it in the show notes because my face when this fucking coffee turned up, it was literally the best day ever. And it just reminded me that small things can bring you joy. And, you know, we have to take pleasure and happiness where we can. And sometimes it is in the smallest of joys, just a milky coffee after you haven't had one for a very long time. And it got delivered. Of course, it was a complete fucking indulgence and it cost me far more than a coffee has ever cost me before but I don't care because I got a Starbucks delivered to my house and it was glorious so yeah I just wanted to share in my complete first world overprivileged um coffee this week but it brought me so much happiness and you can I, I can hear it in my voice how excited I still am at this revelation that you can get Starbucks delivered um and yeah so you know my challenge to you this week is to go and find a small joy wherever you can and just, yeah, like treat yourself. Give yourself a small joy this week, be it a delivered Starbucks or a bath bomb or whatever. Okay, so Rebel of the Week this week is Stacey L. Fraser. Stacy says, I grew up being a good girl, which in my family meant who you were didn't matter unless someone else was watching. No room for screw-ups. I went on to pursue a very linear educational path with no idea what I really wanted, but I firmly believed that there was not a single creative bone in my body. Being a good girl, I was trained early on to have great discipline under the, security, under the scrutiny of others' expectations. I lived on only to measure up. Left to my own devices, I was incredibly self-destructive to the point of addiction, but managed to maintain that put-together professional facade. Over the years, through a shit ton of therapy, I realized my life was based on so many false beliefs, rules I didn't choose but was continuing to live by as an adult, i.e. I am not a creative. Writing became uh, my way of uncovering those false truths. And gave me the courage to discover what I really wanted. As I write this, I'm nine days out from submitting my first novel to a developmental editor and no one is holding my feet to the fire but me. No one is watching, making sure my ass is in the chair, and that is just fucking fine. Today I write for me, for my dreams, and to share stories of hope and gritty perseverance that will motivate another soul to carve their own path. I write to share a story about a girl who grew up and figured out the only thing standing in her way was herself. Writing is my rebellion. Story is my rebel cry. And I'm not fucking going anywhere. I love this so much. I love the empowerment. I I just love everything um, about this story. And the fact that it's, you know, that writing is so important has made such a life-changing um Uh, has made such a life change for you Um, so yeah and I think we all have these false beliefs that we need to work through I know um, I I definitely have had them in the past and I'm sure I will have them again if you would like to be a rebel of the week please do send in your story and definitely do because um, the pot is always thinning Um, so you it can be any kind of story big small or somewhere in between You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me uh, at rebelauthorpod. Although I would say I am uh, much better at replying to email than um, uh, tweeting, but suffice to say you can do either. Uh, So one new patron this week, welcome and a huge thank you to Jackson Hollingsworth. Thank you very much. And thank you to all of the patrons that attended the uh, Patreon only Poison and Prose. I have uh, set the next one for the 16th of March and I've actually just changed the time. Uh, It's going to be at 9. P.M. UK, uh, just to allow uh, those in Australia to join us as well. Uh, A huge thank you to all my existing patrons. I really, really appreciate you guys. And um, yeah, and hopefully uh, more of you will come and join the uh, Poison and Prose as well. I think we had like 10 or 11 of you guys come and join the uh, writing session. So it was super fun. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus uh, Poison and Prose sessions and such like, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Alrighty, let's get on with the sweariest episode ever. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I am practically fucking giddy with excitement for today's episode because I am joined by someone who is possibly even more sweary than I am. Today, I am joined by Emma Byrne. Emma is a honest-to-goodness robot scientist who, when she's not developing intelligent systems, writes for Forbes, the FT, and Global Business Magazine. She also frequently appears on Sky News and the BBC, where I suspect she's very much less sweary than she will be today Uh, and usually talking about the future of artificial intelligence and robotics her interest in neuroscience led her to her first popular science book swearing is good for you the amazing science of bad language which i have read and was deeply fascinated by for very obvious reasons so welcome
1: thank you so much for having me sasha
0: you are most welcome. I can tell you, it, the honor is all mine. Um, and for anyone who is feeling mildly sensitive today, I mean, let's be real, if you're a listener to this show, you're probably not fucking sensitive. But if you are, we are going to do our absolute utmost to make this the most sweary episode in the history of the Rebel Author Podcast. So buckle in, bitches. Um, <laughs> Alright, so tell everyone a little bit about your journey, um, and I guess your career, and and how you got to where you are now as an author.
1: Yeah, so I started out uh, wanting to be in the field of AI because of reading Isaac Asimov, and particularly... Uh, reading the ones with Dr Susan oh god I forget her surname but the robo psychologist uh, and particularly the short story Liar Liar which I think is is an amazing bit of storytelling uh, in terms of revealing different mental states and different wants and conflict. Uh, It was only afterwards that I realised that he was a raving misogynist. And and this was uh, actually a pretty hideous view of women. I was about 12 when I was reading them uh, and also realised that the three laws of robotics have nothing to do with computer science and everything to do with narrative. Uh, But the seed was sown and I started out bizarrely my first... Uh, fields of study were actually modern languages um, because my mother was convinced that these would be useful uh, and also that uh, I would grow out of my sort of techno dyke phase. Uh, I have not I have if anything grown into it. Um, so yeah I she was uh, well-meaning but really believed that everything, that was sort of not entirely feminine in my teens, we would be cured as soon as I became a real woman. Uh, whereas I just, I no, no, just that hasn't happened. Um, so I was always super interested in technology. And when I uh, sort of finished my studies, I was like, fuck, I have made such an error here. Uh, (laughs) why the hell am I (laughs) educated in French Uh, I I love it and it's great for you know going over there and ordering cheese and wine but not what I love and (laughs) so I I, I go weirdly I have I have um, a sliding scale of pitches so when I speak French uh, I go a little bit higher pitched, but then I speak a very, very cursory amount of Japanese and in that I sound like I've been inhaling helium, which is uh, a little odd. <laughs> I think I, in terms of more sort of butch to femme kind of sense, I am definitely more on my mask side when I'm speaking British English. And then I go uh, super kawaii in, in Japanese. So I, the, the, the stuff in the book on swearing about how people with different languages to a bilingual degree, do talk about having personalities, distinct personalities in those languages, really, really resonated. Um, but I turned my back on the study of languages uh, and went off and did a doctorate in AI and have been doing lots of research in that field for about uh, a decade and a half now. Um, so, how the fuck did I end up writing a book on swearing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I ended up working in something called a computational neuroscience lab where we build models of the systems that we know function in the brain that we know of either from looking at uh, neural recordings in things like rats or cats or that we know from fMRI uh, that we have an idea of how these processes might interconnect. So I was looking at particularly the visual system in all primates, uh, fascinating entire podcast in and of itself but we were based out of the science museum which has this fantastic thing called lates or will do presumably post-pandemic uh where they kick out all the kids let in all the grown-ups i say grown-ups they're mainly students from imperial college next door uh get a load of bar uh staff in and then just basically go look science engage with science so one of the um the the conditions of the lab's tenancy was we had to do experiments with the public so I liberally interpreted that as being able to do experiments on the public <laughs> uh, <laughs> <I love it. laughs> ethics what is those um so yeah I um I found this brilliant experiment by a guy called Rich Ste- Richard Stevens uh from Keele University which is this you stick your hand in ice water and if you swear you can do it for longer um than if you're using a neutral word So I pitched this, and i like, yeah, sure, help yourself to ice and cold water, Um, you know, risk assessment, what are risk assessment? Um, um, Yeah, I look back, and I'm like, that was... um that was probably fine. I've done it in every talk since, by the way, and like there's only a couple of venues that have gone, we need a risk assessment. How do you make sure that the person that you're sticking, that you're getting to stick their hands in ice cold water isn't going to, you know, lose a finger? I was like, because people are in the main not stupid. Um... Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm revising that, I'm revising that <laughs> in, 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 in the light of recent events. Um, so, yeah, I, I found this brilliant paper on swearing and how it kills pain. And that was my first inkling that swearing is good for you. Swearing isn't something that, as I had been raised to believe, you know, a sign of a impoverished intellect and of being deeply unfeminine. Um, you know, I can be deeply unfeminine and not swear. Um, but it's yeah, it is very interesting that all of a sudden this whole world of citations opened up I fell down this citation rabbit hole of you know who's Rich Stevens cited about swearing and who have they cited about swearing and before I knew it I had a literally a pile of papers about two foot deep on my desk all about swearing and I was nerding on about this Um, and at the same time I happened to do a course that was run by the bbc the bbc academy they had something called the expert women program because i think researchers at city university in the journalism department had noticed that the ratio of women to men on uh As talking heads, as interviewees, as experts on programmes, was fucking parlous. It's like, you know, one woman to every seven or eight men. Like, this is ridiculous. What are you producers doing? And the producers went, We're trying. We ring women up all the time and say, Please, can you come on and talk about such and such? And they go, I don't know if I'd be very good at that. Um, I'm not the most specialist in that. You should talk to my colleague, uh, usually James or Dave or Brian, um, uh, because they probably will be better. Whereas if you, they were saying, this is not me saying this, they were saying, if you bring up a chap, It's like, oh, hello, you're uh, Mr. John Smith or Professor John Smith at the London School of Economics. Could you talk about coronavirus? And they're like, I don't know anything about it, but I'm very smart. So, yes, (laughs) we really have to redress this balance. So I was doing this academy program I applied for and got one of the places to be trained as a media expert um, or at least an expert who could talk to the media without sounding like a complete dick or driveling on hi it worked sorry um and part of that was pitch a producer get a, a story that about about something that you're expert in and pitch a picture producer and I said like, I don't want to do one on AI I'm kind of bored of what everybody's been saying about AI. It was before Elon Musk started wanking on about artificial general <laughs> intelligence, which, like, frankly, dude, you massively underestimate the complexity of the human brain. So fuck off. Mind you, have you seen the state of his brain? I can see why he overestimates its complexity. Anyway, Elon Musk, a uh, person who inherited his fortune, uh, reckoning that the world is going to be run by super intelligent uh, robots way down the line at that point, not much I felt I could say about AI. Uh, So I was like, I'm I'm doing this research about swearing. And it was a producer, Giles Edwards on Radio 4, who's like, that sounds interesting. And I was like, really? On Radio 4? Yes, tell me more. So I pitched him and I did this 15 minute show um, on, you know, just swearing in general, what's going on in the brain when you're swearing. But someone else that I then met I think at the Association of British Science Writers Conference, which if you have uh, science writers who are not members of that, uh, they should join the ABSW because they're great. Um, they had a fantastic conference and someone said, you should pitch this as a book. i like, oh, I don't have time to write a whole book and then shop it around. And she went, what are you talking about? I was like, what do you mean? Went, have you not seen the book, How to Sell Then Write, your Nonfiction book? No, this is not. I I have I have one friend who writes novels. Not not. I have one friend. I have many friends. One of whom writes. I have some friends. I have one friend, and she (laughs) writes novels. And um, and of course, the whole process for that is, is, you know, you write the fucking thing, and then you hope that someone buys it, and you you send your baby out into the world, and people keep kicking it back in your lap, and it takes forever. And I was like, I, I, my my ego can't deal. Uh, they went, no, 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 you write a proposal. I hadn't realised at the time that the proposal is probably about a third of the number of words of a of a complete book. But, you know, I was like, oh, I could probably do that. So we did that, and I shopped that around a bit. I uh, got some really good feedback from various people, including a chap called Peter Tallock from the Science Factory, who, again, if you have any science writers who are listening, uh, he is an incredible sort of agent developer, but I was, you know, I was not for him. And then eventually found uh, my agent who is Carrie Plitt, who just was so open to the idea of something that was a bit left of field. So before I know it, I've signed on to actually, I say before I know it, like I hadn't put in months and months of work on this proposal. I'm (laughs) signed on to try and develop this book. Just, just, you know, you know how it is. It's weird. It's sort of like afterwards you go, Oh, and then I just sort of fell into this. And it's like, I still have the fucking calluses for yeah. rewriting and rewriting. <laughs> but, you know, this old thing. Um, so, yeah, no, I put the hours in and I managed to get this book picked up and it just kind of went from there. I suddenly realised that I thought it'd be one and done. I suddenly realized that I've been working in this field with a bunch of fairly blokey blokes, a lot of programmers for a long time, Uh, some of whom are lovely, one of whom I married, uh, (laughs) many of whom very good friends. um, But I had never been in a field that had such a a broader representation of gender um that you know and pu- it says something that publishing is the most diverse thing that I've worked in so far isn't that sad uh, but publishing is the most diverse industry I've worked in so far and um <laughs> yeah I know I know I should, you should try tech oh my god <laughs> um the, the my stepdad was called Dave he was a computer scientist or a software engineer and he used to say the Dave to woman ratio in tech is hilarious like this sort of Five Daves for every woman. And uh, I thought he was joking until I started working in tech. Um, so, yeah, uh, publishing, met amazing people. Um, and oh God, such a giving community uh, science writers, science communicators, nonfiction writers, organisations like the Society of Authors. I suddenly realised this was the the discipline I wanted to join academia has so much to recommend it but the thing I used to say is what I love best about my job is being allowed to read a lot of stuff find stuff out and then communicate that to people and all of a sudden it was just a no-brainer that here was a job that would let me do that full-time I mean, I was gonna say with none of the admin, again, you know, that's bullshit. Um, mm. There is a lot of the admin, but the that idea of being an entrepreneur, um, and again, listening to your podcast, I'm like, I've got to own this. I am a business person. It's not all, oh, you know, I just, I just write silly books about swearing and neuroscience. And if people sort of get to see how science is done, that's very lovely. But it's, you know, they just put it by the side of the toilet and dip into it. It's like, Yeah, no, you worked your ass off on that. You did some decent research and it's a good project and you worked with some amazing people to bring it to fruition. So fucking own it. So that that is my um, resolution for 2021 is to fucking own it uh, and to fucking own my professional identity. So thank you for that, uh, Rebel (laughs) Author Podcast. Uh, Because yeah, that's how I came to do science writing. Um, and not long form nonfiction. And I still do write about AI and I I am still very interested in AI. Um, I'm not in a lab anymore. Um, And at first I missed it terribly, but now I just, I have so much more time to read because that is in direct service of writing and that idea of filling a creative well
0: Mm-hmm.
1: um it, it is for me um I, I don't know how novelists do this uh, but when i've got writer's block it is as easy as just going to google scholar or going to the british library catalogue and unblocking myself by finding another interesting paper uh, usually with a really hilarious picture in it um so yeah i i really love the field that I'm in and it took me I was um, 38 when I finally you know sort of put uh, my ink on a contract to to sell a book and it's like oh my god there's like there's the before and there's the after so I am forever thankful to that weird experiment in the science museum and that wonderful experience at the BBC and the amazing people, the agents, the editors who have given me the gift of going, I mean, I like it, but it could be better if you try, have you thought about this? Because I was thought writing would be horribly lonely and for all that I'm an introvert, I also you know, do desire the affirmation of another human being wanting to talk to me now and again. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I love my life as a writer. Um, and I love what I've learned yeah
0: would you ever come to the dark side of like indie publishing
1: I would I totally would um so profile is a great fit for the stuff on sort of psychology and neuroscience and also my editor there is, is is gorgeous um but I would uh sorry Rebecca but you are you're gorgeous um but I there are projects that I'm thinking of that are actually a big um step out of my comfort zone um and by that I mean particularly memoir um so it would still be nonfiction. um I am terrible at my ask my four year old daughter tell me a bedtime story tell me a new bedtime story and it's I, I am terrible um But, yeah, there are a couple of events in my life uh, that at some point I or a couple of events, a couple of formative experiences, shall we say, that I would like to write about. And I feel that for that. um, So, yeah, uh, independent side. Yeah, um, I think now I'm starting to learn the business more. I would feel much more confident but i do have friends i have i have a friend um several friends who have done both uh traditional you know someone else bears the risk of getting your book to market versus indie you know doing either doing it yourself or using platforms like uh is it reedsy where you can get uh see you know buy services in and i see advantages to both i have no idea we, I don't think the market's going to choose between one or the other I think there is space for both
0: mm-hmm. um yeah okay so we are here to talk about your book swearing is good for you and I totally agree I, I swear like a fucking fishwife. uh listeners only need to know that um but tell listeners why is swearing good for you So there are
1: ways in which it is good for you personally as an individual, Uh, the most compellingly researched one is the effect that swearing has on pain, Uh, the fact that if you're in pain or if you're having to do something unpleasant, swearing can really help you with that, you can withstand pain, you can uh, use more more force if you're doing something physical, Uh, if you are swearing than if you're not it's also extremely useful for us on a societal level so if you look at uh, essentially my favorite chapter in the book is one about chimpanzees learning sign yeah. language
0: yeah and as dirty, soon as they have
1: <laughs> dirty dirty <laughs> so they, like that, yeah. they, hit, they hit the underside of their jaws and their teeth like clack together so it's a very Uh, It looks as satisfying as saying fuck, to be honest. (laughs) But the idea that as soon as an intelligent being has both a taboo and a means of expressing that taboo, they use that instead of violence, is incredible. It has been good for us as a species. It has probably allowed a lot of us to live a little longer than we would have done if violence was everybody else's first resort. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we can all think of times when we've accidentally, you know, upset someone and um, accidentally jumped a queue and someone has reacted with the degree of anger that has moved them to swearing. But the fact that it moves them to swearing rather than physical altercation is a huge win for us as a species. And then the final thing is swearing is good for you if you are a neuroscience researcher, (laughs) uh, because the ability for swearing to remain as a part of our uh, repertoire of expression, even when the entirety of the rest of language is gone, tells us something really fascinating about the ways in which emotion and intention Um, and cognition and even language are distributed in the brain and they really are distributed. Um, We can talk more about the the brain structures involved if you like, Um, but yeah, just to say that language, and particularly swearing, has uh, is, is what we call in computer science redundant. Uh, there are multiple ways of accessing it, like if you had sort of two machines running the same service, and if one goes down, the other will take over. Uh, swearing is so important that it is actually distributed in that way in the brain.
0: Some of the so I loved the chimpanzee section as well, but some of the other sections that I found fascinating were um, like the brain injuries. And I mean, I have a background in cognitive neuroscience. So this is I mean, I perhaps geeked out more than the average writer would. Um, But yeah, and how, um, you know, if you damage your left hemisphere versus your right hemisphere, there are different effects and impacts on um, on your swearing um but yeah I don't know do you want to just briefly like explain the different impacts like if different sizes of your brain get damaged?
1: Sure so for most right-handed westerners at least um the parts that help us produce language that connect some sense of meaning some semantics with the extremely complex muscular coordination required to utter a word uh, are on the left side. There are two areas, Broca's and Wernicke's, named for the neuroscientists who discovered them, and they help us turn representation into utterance. And we know this because if those are damaged, people cannot turn representation into utterance. Um, It is absolutely fascinating to read to me anyway, to read uh, case notes of brain surgery, because during brain surgery, the patient is kept awake. Uh, There is local anaesthetic but they are kept awake in order that the surgeons can check the boundaries of these areas in the brain, because it looks like a fairly homogeneous mass. I mean, there are Structures that you can kind of map out, but in order to be certain that you found the functional boundaries, what you want to do is stimulate parts of people's brains with a small electrode and if someone suddenly cannot produce words once you've stimulated this area you don't want to cut there so if you've ever seen the people walking down the road with spray cans and little sensors just basically marking you know here's the electrical cable don't dig here here's the gas pipe don't dig here they basically do that on your brain while you're awake and then they know the limits of where you can where you can cut but we've actually known this for much much longer i was surprised by how impressively detailed Victorian neuroscience was because of the post-mortem studies on people who had had some kind of language deficit and then died. So now we can look at the brain using fMRI or brain, you know, if people are undergoing brain surgery, you know, not brain surgery for the sake of looking at brains, but while you're in there, why not have a look around. And those Victorian neuroscientists like Broca and like John Hewling's Jackson, people will come to them and go, my patient has this weird thing where they can only say one word over and over again, or uh, they have forgotten, seem to have forgotten how to speak, uh, but they understand things perfectly. Uh, Or they're suddenly speaking a language they spoke in childhood and haven't spoken since, uh, as opposed to the language they've normally spoken. And you basically, you wait for these people to die and then have a look at the brains. And it was consistently tumours or injuries to the left side of the brain that caused these linguistic deficits. But of course, your sample size is very small. You, you've got to wait for patients who have these deficits and then study their brains once they've died. So in any scientific career, you know, you've got like a, yeah, maybe 20 brains you're going to look at. But we've known this for a long time, that left-hand side of the brain for about 90% of us is the areas responsible for language uh, are housed there. But then just recently we started to unpack, what does that mean being responsible for language? Because there is more to language than just the the coordination of the diaphragm, the lungs, the teeth, the tongue, the vocal cords. all of these things are required to, uh, to communicate verbally, and I think Sophie Scott is fantastic on this. The, the sheer muscular ballet of each and every phoneme that you utter, and so there are many parts of the brain that are involved in this. And it turns out that brokers and vernicos seem to be very useful for turning something that we call um, sort of deliberate speech, or, um, oh gosh, I'm sorry, there is a term in the book that's called clean out of my head, but that speech where you, you plan something and you withdraw hopefully terms from memory, unless you've had a brain fart, like I just did then, <laughs> and turn those into utterances. But there are other parts of the brain that can turn emotional states into utterances and the reason that we know this is that people who who now we know while they're alive that they've had a stroke on the left side of the brain because you know they've had a brain scan you know exactly the limits of the damage or they've had something called a left hemispherectomy which is a radical surgery removing the entire left side of the brain can and generally do still swear fluently And appropriately, my favourite study on this was when they were talking about um, there's a a protocol whereby you show aphasic patients, patients with speech problems post brain injury, a set of pictures to see what they can name. And some people might be able to name uh, nouns but can't access verbs. Some people can access words but very slowly some people can't say them but they can draw the objects there's all kinds of interesting things now we're starting to unpick about the um the link between semantics and utterance but my favorite study of this was um they're talking about showing this particular patient you know picture of a chair picture of a watch picture of someone running Uh, and they painstakingly detail the utterances of this person you know he uh, patient uh, I think his name is D in the paper D uh, pauses for five seconds and makes a frustrated you know breathing out uh, or you know in response to the picture of the match you know he looks at it and then goes and then stops and then they show him a picture of Ronald Reagan and it just says D responded with a particularly fluent stream of swearing that was, uh, was it? sort of like normally produced. But they don't tell me what. <laughs> it's very annoying how mealy mouthed some of these researchers are about actually recording the swear words that are used. Amazing amount of papers about swearing with no swearing in. Fascinating. Anyway, turns out that you can have the entire left side of your brain removed and still manage this complex muscular ballet that is the production of words as long as those words are incredibly emotive and that to me is fascinating we're still not quite sure what that content is and how it is linked to those motor processes of speech but it exists and many many months after writing the book I was on a show a radio show talking about this And one of the producers collared me afterwards and said, I didn't know that. And I wish someone had told me that. I was like, why? My dad had a stroke about a year and a half ago and we thought had lost all of his language. But we went out for a picnic a few months ago and we were sitting you know, on on this hilltop, and he hasn't said my mum's name for a year. He's not said I love you. Uh, he hasn't been able to tell her what he needs. He's been getting angry and frustrated because he can't do things or say things. But they're sitting there having this picnic, and a red kite flew down. You know, the the bird of prey flew down and nicked his sandwich, and he's just he just went fucking bastard. And my mum was heartbroken. Because it's like, why can't he tell me that he loves me, but he can call a bird a fucking bastard? It's because it's in a different part of the brain. I know. And I'm like, oh, my God, the Stroke Association should totally tell people this. Your loved one (laughs) may swear. It's not that they're withholding the rest of their speech. It's just that words that are that emotive tend to be preserved and we know it must be on the right side of the brain somewhere because <laughs> even when the left side is completely excised we can still swear most people can still swear the other one that's fascinating one day I will I don't know, write a book about sense of humor or something but I'm fascinated by the fact that right hemispherectomy to me or right hemisphere damage anyway um is connected with people suddenly losing all understanding of non-literal speech and of joking and of metaphor. And they just end up with like no sense of humor (laughs) and also don't swear either. Um, So they become sort of like, uh, I guess, the the kind of stereotypical Midwestern American um, of like the sort of bless your heart brigade of, you know, no swearing, no irony no no joking it's literally it's like
0: my worst fear in life is yeah. like not being able to be like disgustingly a- anti-socially sarcastic and sweary like i yeah. just what is life without swearing and and sarcasm <laughs> one of the um things that i love is that swearing is both functional and emotional and Mm -hmm. um yeah uh, like oh i just i i find this whole subject so fascinating um and the fact that swearing isn't just located in one area in the brain like there's different you know and each of those different areas in the brain is controlling a different type of like because before yeah i mean yeah i swear emotionally like like emotively and i swear functionally but like Mm -hmm. i would never have Realise that those were separate types of swearing um yeah, yeah so this is this is awesome and, and and in talking about different types of swearing I found the sections uh in your book about the differences in regional swearing fascinating mm. like you mentioned and I and I am practically senile so I don't remember the um nuances and details but like the difference between Canadian French people and french people living in france with native french there um mm. uh, you know and the fact that they swear differently um and i think like as writers we often create characters from different areas be they fantastical or literal you know real setting contemporary situations so i this is something you know that we could use in our storytelling in terms of like the types of swearing we use or don't use for that matter so i'd love for you to talk about the differences in regional swearing um and especially about like how liberal and creative we english are with the word fuck versus <laughs> like the countries who have mustache insults which i just thought was fascinating <laughs> um and uh, yeah and and i suppose like the like translations as well cuz i know um that people there was something that was being translated uh, into Spanish and and we didn't don't because we use fuck in so many different ways it was very hard to translate so yeah just talk talk to me about uh, regional differences (laughs) and swearing
1: yeah I mean this really tweaked the the part of me that did start out studying languages and it was fascinating there is a researcher he hasn't written anything uh popular linguistics yet and I wish he would but he's called John Mark DeWala. and he's at oh Birkbeck I think and he talks he's he interviews people who are like polylingual talking not just bilingual but quadrilingual and fluent in all of them um and he has discovered some fascinating patterns. Uh, I think it was his research, at least through his research that I first got onto the uh, the stuff that looks at people. And if you learn a language before adolescence, you tend to swear emotively in it. If you learn it after adolescence, it goes one of two ways. If you find swearing in your own language emotionally too difficult, um, you know, you, you got an awful lot of censure for it growing up there's a tendency to adopt the second language swearing as being sort of slightly easier to to talk about. Whereas if you were fine swearing in your first language, you tend to carry on with that and not find the second language swearing quite so compelling. Um, And in looking at that, he's been able to unpack, you know, is, is it that there are some things that are just, universally more offensive? And the answer is no, it's so culturally dependent. Uh, you mentioned the example of Canadian French versus European French, and the fact that words like tabernac, uh, tabernacle it is a swear word uh, and, and appears in Canadian hip hop, which was not a sentence I'd ever typed before the book. Um, and uh, and so that is a really interesting example of essentially divergent evolution in swearing uh for me there's also the example of i think the word cunt is a real uh it's an amazing way of working out somebody's age if you know where they come from mm-hmm. or where they come from if you know their age particularly if you know the target and the reason for that is that In the United States, the word cunt has only ever really been levied against women. Uh, It is almost exclusively a misogynistic slur. In the UK, if you came up in the sort of 70s and 80s and that wave of feminism, there was it was seen as a phenomenally misogynistic swear word because it was mainly used by men against women with whom they did not agree. Then came Ladette culture, just my era because I'm old now, uh, where the height of uh, performing one's feminism, I'm so embarrassed right now, it's like is, the height of performing once feminism uh, was basically things like being able to neck a pint faster than any of the blokes in the bar uh, and calling all your male friends a cunt. And then now your younger listeners will be going, can you stop saying that? Because Internet culture now means that the American use of that word. Of it having more misogynistic overtones, it's basically it's in the YouTube comments under several of my videos. It tends to arrive in my DMs, but it's like I, I was wearing plaid shirts in the '90s and downing pints and calling my male mates that word, and and I don't think that they ever called me it i think they still residually went oh no that's you can't call a woman that you can only call a man that (laughs) so there was obviously a gendered element but there was an element of reclaimed usage that really brackets me having now spoken to people about the use of it that really brackets me as either i'm from england in particular and came up as a ladette or i'm from glasgow um, my my favourite talk was, I uh, actually did one uh, when the book first came out as part of the book tour. I, I went up to Glasgow to talk about swearing, <laughs> it was just the most redundant thing. I, I went there as, as an acolyte and as a, um, as, it's sort of like in Karate Kid, you know, I went up there and I'm like, swearing, I am interested in it, teach me it all. Um, and it was great, but yeah, the the word "cunt" is laden in misogyny, and and it's one of those ones that hovers between swearing and slur, swearing and slur. There are other words that are quite definitively slurs. Um, in uh, in most languages that I know of now, and that things to do with race and sexuality, we are more aware of the power of those words to hurt or the way that those words are used by people who are simultaneously hurtful which then again swearing is so emotive slurs are so emotive i don't use the n-word because i cannot possibly understand what it is like Mm. to hear that word and wonder if it is the prelude to someone punching me in the face for my skin color
0: Yeah, so I and I feel exactly the same way. And so, thinking about the regions, and I have no idea if you have an answer to this, but is there a sweariest country?
1: I'm not sure that there is. I think we are, uh, you translators would be really good at answering this question. But in my research for the book, it turns out that there is no country in the world that does not have words for expressing frustration, annoyance, or even, you know, elation and happiness. Just the the only difference is which taboos are broken. So in Japan, for example, crap is no big deal. That's why we have a poop emoji. <laughs> it's just like, hi. I'm sending you a friendly poop. There is a um, there is a building. I think it was designed. I can't remember who it's designed by, but I think it's the headquarters for the Asahi Brewing Corporation. Uh, and it's meant to look like the top. There's this sort of bulbous golden thing that apparently, according to the designer, is meant to uh, connote the the wisp of like foam on the top of it blowing off the top of a beer bottle, but is known as the golden poop we've got all the shit which you know that we don't that would be like calling the 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 bbc calling the gherkin the dildo which they should should. um they should um but it's 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 you know to us it's like that that's weird that why would you why would you do that but it's because shitting isn't a big deal whereas saying that someone is stupid um has the same force as again a very ableist slur in this country um, so i it's not that they're less sweary it's just that when you first encounter the language the swearing is not where you think it is mm-hmm. and if you say you know oh i'm i'm an idiot a you know my therapist would be like can you stop doing that it's negative self-talk <laughs> but also if you do that in japan it would be like calling yourself the R word. Like, can what? Don't use that word. Ah, that's horrible. And the other one was, is it Maneko? Which is um which is basically a vulva. Um and there's uh there's some brilliant stuff about, you know, it's like everything's fine until someone says vulva and then everybody just falls over. Um and someone was
0: actually it just, oh yes. it's, it's like, like in Dutch, isn't it? Like the what the one of the worst swear words is cancer in Dutch. I know.
1: And it feels like word magic, which is this idea that you could because this is the, the, the long historical connection uh, there's a historian called John Gallagher who's really good on the sort of historical connection between cursing and swearing and this idea that you are using a taboo but it's a taboo that can actually harm the person you're wishing harm on that person and we don't really use that that much in this country um, we tend to stick to body parts and body functions but yeah you mentioned you know mustache which is to do with which is to do with male virility uh, saying you have a poor moustache is I guess kind of a bit like in the States when people uh, are now really enjoying calling each other cucks. <laughs> it's like... I have not heard <laughs> that one. Oh, you've not heard cuck. It's no. a very specific niche of porn. Uh, it derives oh. from the word of cuckold and oh, the okay. idea of guys <laughs> getting off on their wives being banged by usually a black person. Uh, and so far right tends to use cuck. Uh when what they mean is race traitor. Um, and it's it's really nauseating, you know. Um, yeah, it, it it oh man, it there are some there are some deeply wounded people uh on on uh who are very convinced uh, that, uh, oh, it, no, I'm not even going to go into what they're very convinced of. It's just uh, terrifying how threatened they feel. It's so at
0: odds with reality. So let me ask you, what is your favourite swear word?
1: Oh, man, it's like saying, what's your favourite pube? I mean, I love <laughs> them all and I need them. And I've got fewer and fewer as the years go by. I don't know. Um, I have it's not my favorite swear word it's my favorite moment of swearing in my life um no i have no i have a new one. Oh, oh i'm sorry british sign language interpreter you've been demoted so it used to be when i was doing the talk at the science museum many years after i'd worked there uh, when the book finally came out i did a talk at the late saying yeah back to the spiritual home of swearing is good for you um and i had a british sign language interpreter which is wonderful more events more events need this Um, and she was very she was amazing she was keeping up she was fantastic she was like you know I, I don't know BSL in detail but I you know I felt I felt well translated from what I could see and I'd mentioned the portmanteau swear words, this idea of the bathos of um, cockwomble, which I think she spelled out for me, fingerspelled cockwomble. And then I said, oh, spunk trumpet. And she just looked at me and went, you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're on your own for that one. I'm not even, I just spunk trumpet. It's probably something that one could do for spunk trumpet. Uh, but actually my favourite Instance of being present for someone else's swear word was we went to one of those. You're a parent, you've probably been to one of these family resorts when your kids are quite young, and you're going, It would be great to go somewhere where we could go to a nice restaurant for dinner, but the kids need to be in bed by like seven o'clock. So we're going to go somewhere with a family buffet where they can just throw pasta on the floor and nobody's going to roll their eyes. So we, we had a few years of those sorts of holidays. And the second one of those that we went on, my daughter would have been nearly two. And we'd shoved her in a, um, in a high chair. She does not take well to be restrained. Never has, uh, very active baby. Stuck her in this high chair and said, look, you have to stay in here. It's very busy. People are walking around with plates of hot things. So just until we finish eating, and then as soon as we've finished eating, we'll go back outside again. It's not forever, okay, okay, okay. So she's eating her pasta and I'm finishing my dinner. And then she just turned around to me and went, Mommy, get me out of this fucking high <laughs> chair. Oh and goodness, I was me. like, the intonation was no. <laughs> perfect. The choice of the caliber of swear word. Yeah. absolutely ideal the fact that she responded to her frustration by saying get me out of this fucking high chair and not hurling cutlery on the floor uh, or throwing her juice you know I just I that was a precious precious moment to me yeah and when the book first came out I had she had been born about sort of eight nine months before and people were like what will you do when your daughter starts swearing have you stopped swearing no you're a parent oh, fucking hell no <laughs> um but I'm going to talk to her about the emotional meaning behind swear words and we do we talk a lot about the emotional meaning behind swear words and why you have to understand your audience before you use them mm. uh, which is my uh, don't say that at nursery uh, yes. <laughs> but sort of say you know that that's that's a word that you know it's a good way of telling Mummy how you're feeling but I and granddad probably would go, I feel things about that word and not listen to how you feel. And that's what it comes down to with swearing. And the, the whole chapter on Tourette's syndrome is we tend quite often when we hear swearing is to think about how we feel, not how the speaker feels. And so to me, I, I now respect swearing and I, I do some volunteer work on a helpline and I, I find that swearing I'm not going to say it doesn't affect me emotionally, but I am conscious of that emotional effect and I separate it very quickly from what the person's telling me. I I, I use it as a register of the state of their emotions. And again, I think this comes back to in fiction characterization there's there's a theory that I know of from I have another friend who does acting uh and talks about the the pinch and the ouch and how it's very unconvincing you know if you get a little pinch on stage you know a character gets a tiny pinch and you go ah or some slaps you in the face and you go, Ooh. you know it's, they've got to match the the pinch and the ouch that the swearing is the ouch that tells you how bad the pinch is and i find that i don't have a i don't have a preferred swear word but times that i hear swearing used authentically to express either enthusiasm joy frustration sadness grief anger i now am better able to be with that person's feelings than going oh my feelings about that swear word Um, but i think it helps that i always thought swearing was fucking brilliant anyways. (laughs)
0: I I was definitely a young swearer although I didn't swear in front of my mum until I was 16 I just kept her uh, in the dark over my sweary nature but I have (laughs) always been a swearer and I have always had sort of the elder people in my family ask me not to swear and I just can't stop. Like, I can't. Exactly. It's fantastic. I so that before, when I was pregnant, everybody sort of said to me, Oh, oh dear, you know, what are you gonna do when you have children? You know. And um, for the most part, I try not to swear in front of him. Um, but everybody was convinced I would be the one that would teach him the swear words. And um, so my one of my favorite swearing stories is the first time my son ever said a swear word. And he was two um, the week prior. Now, my wife will quite like, she queries this. She doesn't say this is what happened. But in my words, she called me a fucker. I can't remember why. She was upstairs. (laughs) I was downstairs. Something had happened. Anyway, so she calls me a fucker. And um, Atlas, here's this. This is is our son's called Atlas. And um, anyway... Uh, nothing happened and we were like okay thank god we've we've got away with it anyway then then at the child minders the following week she'd sort of said no to him about something he couldn't have this toy um anyway and so she was going upstairs for a wee and he stood at the gate and looked up at her and went you fucker (laughs) and I was just she just said she absolutely died she had to just like walk because and I can't help it like whenever like I hear a child drop out a swear word, you know, when you hear these TikToks or whatever, I mean, it is just literally the funniest thing I've ever, like I am like, ah, ah, you know, when you're like about to hurt you're laughing so hard. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and so I'm pleased to say that I am not the one that's taught our son the swear words. And even though everybody <laughs> thought I would be. Um, but oh, he finds God. swearing delightfully um, hilarious. So I'm sure he will be also a swearer when he gets older. Um, we're almost out of time. I can't believe it. I have so many other questions I wanted to ask you. Um, so I'm going to um, just pick a couple of uh, last questions. So. Mm-hmm thinking about um I guess fiction and our characters um a section in your book you talk about how there's quite a stark difference between male and females or at least there was historically and it is sort of cu- becoming a bit more um uh, even now but can you talk a little bit about that because I think it might help um writers to consider how they create swear words or how they put swearing into the mouths of like male and female characters in their stories
1: sure I mean Historically, up until oh, I think it's the late 1600s, there really wasn't much difference. There's no um, sort of belief that swearing was more male than female. And then this guy, this guy called there are there are several people who who get the middle name fucking in my life. My daughter is now <laughs> the other day. I was just said something on the news, and she went, "Is it Donald fucking Trump <laughs> But the other person who gets that as a middle name is Richard fucking Alistair, who wrote this pamphlet called The Lady's Calling. And it was all about, you know, correct deportment for women. And it was very much this idea of uh, patriarchal, you know, guys are in charge, guys know stuff. Women obey them and then model obedience to children. And he he writes in this that he can't imagine there is no sound more odious to the ears of God than an oath in the mouth of a woman. Like not, not, you know, the sound of a a child who is crying in hunger or the anguished wails of someone who has just lost someone they love. No, me saying bollocks is what makes baby Jesus (laughs) cry. Okay, fine, Richard. But this idea takes on, it's weirdly popular. Um, and has stayed with us. And there's a kind of a, certainly in in British English, and you see this in other cultures as well, that the more patriarchal a society is, and the more there is this belief that you have men with power, women with custodial responsibility, and children who are to be protected slash indoctrinated, swearing is taken away from women. Uh, Which is odd, because it's still the line I could not, uh, that I knew my editor was gonna be, uh, the editor I want to work with forever which was why the fuck someone like Richard Allistree would think that women could be kept from swearing when we're the ones who give birth so we know mm-hmm. or you know <laughs> that, that we know about uh what was it Sh- pissing shitty and bloody cunts I mean it's just uh, the bodily functions required to uh, to do what women were called upon to do almost universally at that time, which is to bear children. You have to know about swearing or you have to know about the content that swearing is usually about. So he's arguing for this purity of mind of women and that yeah. has stuck. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, But the thing is, it was always a myth, but the problem is it was such a pervasive myth that people who wrote female characters who were predominantly men bought into this myth so women in fiction were written as non-swearers and this the fiction became stronger than fact and women believed that they themselves or their friends were aberrant in that they were swearing but of course in general women don't And of course in general women do and the fiction was aberrant you know I sort of thinking of a sort of Victorian twitter account of men write women um of just you know she faints when she hears the word trousers I mean seriously that's up there with vagina purses it's just (laughs) you don't understand women um but but fiction, the stories we tell, the narratives that we privilege, shape society. And so women grew up with this belief of, you know, I have these strong feelings and there are these words that I am not allowed to use. And it's only when female researchers came on scene in the mid 20th century and started asking women, do you swear, that they started getting honest answers. But up until that point, all of the research had been done by male researchers who would talk to the very few female undergraduates and go, do you swear? And go, no, sir. No, of course not. I, I swear. Of course not. I am a proper and healthy woman.
0: Yeah, of course, and, and
1: Yeah. Cause it was like, you know, if a woman swears, she must be mentally ill or morally defective. Oh, I do hope uh, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm both, but I like to think I still have the right to swear. You know. <laughs> and, you know, I have I have long term depression and there are many things I've done that I'm sure would get me written up horribly in the Daily Mail. But I even if I hadn't, even if I had been pure as the driven snow and been jolly every day of my life, <laughs> I reserved the right to call someone a fucker. Uh, if two-year-olds are allowed to call people fuckers I don't see why I'm not um, so yeah so, so this idea of if you're writing historical fiction the idea that women would swear freely and feel cool about it is probably a bit of a stretch but the idea that women don't swear at all owes more to fiction than it does to reality and looking at women's private correspondence and diaries is the, is the thing that reveals all of this and also the fact that charlotte brontë who wrote the foreword to wuthering heights i have to stress she wrote the foreword she i know she didn't write wuthering heights i'm sorry that it says that in the book she just wrote the foreword uh, but writing as Curra Bell she said you know that, that this is how people talk and there is no point putting dashes or asterisks to cover the words it it doesn't do anything to help actually neurologically it does a bit but it is pointless if you are writing about people who speak this way then they should speak this way and she's fucking right
0: absolutely okay this is always my favorite question this is the rebel author podcast so tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel gosh
1: um I mean turning my back on the expectations of, uh, you know, go and do a useful degree of languages and become a bilingual secretary and going, no, mother, I want to be a robot psychologist <laughs> and doing that. Susan Calvin, just remembered her name. Um, that was a huge rebellion to me. And and I, I wore that heavily early on. There was this belief that I was, um, I was going to do something that involved stepping into a field where there weren't many people like me and i'm white but i am you know female um (laughs) uh, i i don't have the tits to pass as anything more androgynous than female uh i mean i do sorry i I, yes i i am i have been uh my cups runneth over so you know i i am obviously a woman in tech and there have been times when I thought, you know, my mum was right, I don't belong here. Um, the the slightly misogynistic bounce, the um, constant belief that, you know, as I'm a woman, I must be there to do the, the sort of pretty design work. I started a job uh, at the university as a, as a machine learning expert, as you know, in my AI background in a medical department. And on the first day, my supervisor went, Oh, I know what you can help us do. You can help us choose the colours for our website.
0: I hope you ripped him a new asshole. <laughs> I
1: wish I'd ripped him a new asshole. Uh I, I did say I, I look at how I'm dressed if you're relying on me for design inspiration you are because I tend to wear mainly I wear a lot of gray um I say if you're relying on me for design inspiration you are royally I don't think I said royally fucked but that was the you know I said, do, do I look like someone with a great aesthetic sense but uh, you know the, the the um the the subtext was very clear you know you you and and previously I'd had um are you sure you wouldn't rather be, you know, sort of gathering customer requirements than doing actual coding? You know, and 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 again, I think like a huge rebellion turning to my supervisor and going, what, it is, what is it about me that makes you think I would prefer to do that? And I have found whenever I need to rebel against people's expectations, that this is the question that always helps it is what is it about me that makes you think i would want to do that and quite often that makes people confront their assumptions Mm. and sometimes people go oh i thought because you were a woman Oh. Uh, uh, oh. That you your your ovaries are naturally very good at choosing hex codes for for websites. No. My just, ovaries
0: no. are naturally very fucking angry.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Mine too. Yeah. More I so ovaries. as yes. a hurtle towards the menopause. Exactly.
0: Uh, My vagina is pissed that it had to pull yeah. the baby out. Like it is not Absolutely.
1: happy Absolutely. <laughs> if I remake a feminist version of falling down, it's going to be very clear what bit <laughs> is falling down. Um
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you so much for your time today can you tell listeners where they can find out more about you and your books
1: yeah so i do have a website at EmmaBurn.net, burn.net burn is b-y-r-n-e um and uh yeah my uh, first book is currently available on bookshop uk.bookshop.org swearing is good for you and and all others but uk.bookshop.org is lovely for indies um whereas uh jeff bezos's firm can go fuck itself till it pays people a living wage um and oh god i love uh, just basically hoping that uh I don't get cancelled by capitalism. Um, so yes, swearing is good for you. Look for that on uh, at your nearest independent bookstore or if you're still in lockdown, uh, look on bookshop.org. And also How to Build a Human, which is coming out in June, is currently available for pre-order on Waterstones and should be on uh, bookshop.uk, uh, uk.bookshop.org soon. Um, and then finally, follow me on Twitter for bye. Uh, so SCI like science WRI like writing and BY like burn uh, where I can I'll probably say more things about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk Uh, so you know if that floats your boat fine if not stay the hell away
0: (laughs) amazing I have had an absolute ball today thank you so much for joining me
1: (laughs) it has been the dog's bollocks thank you
0: (laughs) yes it fucking has and thank you, of course, to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as joining me for things like poison and bros and getting extra bonus goodies, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Thank you, of course, to everybody listening. I hope we still have listeners. I hope your ears are not bleeding from our blue mouthed, potty mouthed um, excellence. um And if they are, too bad. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Emma Byrne, and this was a very sweary Rebel Author Podcast. This week, I'm going to be joined by somebody I really admire and I have looked up to in this industry for, well, basically since I began. So next week, I am going to be joined by Joanna Penn. And we will be talking about author business plans and uh, long-term thinking and, yeah, like how you can crack I guess your business plan and your future as a indie author so join me next week for that don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher and when you have a moment please leave a review